the Fireside Breakdowns. I'm John. And I'm Robin. And together, we research and break down complex and timely topics facing our society and bring our findings to you every week. Our promise to you is to bring you honest analysis backed by research, to skew our bias towards what can be factually supported, and to try and make it clear when we're giving our opinion versus speaking about actual research. Naturally, we're human. We have blind spots and biases, and they will show through. But our goal isn't to convince you to think any certain way. We want to give everyone a foundational understanding of these complicated topics so that together we can discuss and address them in a thoughtful, beneficial way. Because of the topics that we cover, some of our episodes might get heavy, and some of these topics might seem divisive. But we believe that even on these issues, common understanding can be found. And we hope that those of you listening agree. We don't accept that the current state of society is the way that it must be. Together, through discussion and on common ground, we can build a better world for ourselves and for future generations. So we suggest getting comfortable and maybe having a good drink on hand as we work through this stuff. Welcome to our fireside. Why don't you tell us, what are we going to be hitting? Today, we are talking about the Fairness Doctrine. That's right. The good old-fashioned rule that said that every broadcast media outlet had to present both sides of every story. Okay, that's not exactly true. But (laughs) we often do hear the Fairness Doctrine referred to as uh, the good old days when news couldn't be biased, right? So we figured that, especially in light of last week's episode about basically media bias and how we examine our sources, it would be interesting to talk to you guys about this fairness doctrine stuff. Yeah, I really enjoyed last week's episode, but I mean, personally, it was also one that we didn't have to research extensively because it was all opinion, which is really nice. Uh, You're giving away all of our (laughs) secrets now. I mean, we admitted it last time, but uh, this one is actually... uh, much more thoroughly researched and as in we actually did research on this one and so it's actually rooted in that foundational like core of what we try to do here which is basically uh exemplify the fairness doctrine which is not something i don't think i don't think we consciously set out to do it but it's just we sort of kind of we kind of do or at least i hope we do comes up in a little bit yeah i mean it's it's that basic idea that it serves the public interest for uh, for the general public to get both sides of any particular story so that they can make an informed decision. It sounds like common sense. It really does. I know, which makes this topic, I think, very interesting because even though it sounds like common sense, it sounds like a good thing, the fairness doctrine will will find is kind of a, a thorny issue. It's kind of ta- it, 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 it's kind of a what is the wolf in sheep's clothing? Or it can be. Yeah. It can be. I'm not going to say it is, but it can be. Uh, so we'll get into that <laughs> for now. Like, Robin, what is the Fairness Doctrine and why in the world should we care about it? Okay. So even though the Fairness Doctrine bit the dust when I was only like four years old, and I don't even think you were even born yet, its existence yeah, it and its demise has continued to shape the conversation around news, around broadcasting and politics, especially in recent years, as discussions about media bias and factual reporting have reached this kind of fever pitch. So what actually was the rule? The Fairness Doctrine was a policy that was established after a 1949 report by the FCC, which was titled, In the Matter of Editorializing by Broadcast Licensees, which basically took These provisions of the Radio Act of 1927 that said that all public broadcast radio stations had to operate in the public interest, um, and some parts of the Communications Act of 1934 that mandated that these stations promote a basic standard of fairness in broadcasting, and it combined them all into uh, one, one report that held that broadcast licensees had the duty to devote airtime to fair and balanced coverage of controversial issues 
that were of interest to their home communities, and that individuals who were the subject of editorials or who perceived themselves to be the subject of unfair attack in news programming should be granted an opportunity to reply. And then finally, that candidates for public office were entitled to equal airtime on these broadcast stations. Naturally, I think everyone immediately begins to think about how such a rule would impact political discourse. Like specifically, it really sounds like it is intended to guide our our political discussion yeah. as a country. But and I think that's the most apparent implementation of the fairness doctrine, especially in the United States. Like you wouldn't be wrong thinking that you aired like a conservative opinion. Therefore, you must also air a liberal opinion that prima facie right there. <laughs> like that's how that's what it means. But the applications for the fairness doctrine were actually quite broad. Anything from nuclear plant construction to workers' rights to the importance of certain international relations, they could and did fall under the purview of the Fairness Doctrine. Essentially, if any topic created division in the public, or it could, or it had that potential, uh, it was in the public interest to ensure both sides of that topic, which I pointed this out while we were while we were writing this, we keep saying both sides and we're going to say both sides a lot throughout this because that's kind of the phraseology that was used in, in all of, all of the write-ups about this. But, um, I don't think like the actual fairness doctrine wording doesn't necessarily say both sides. It makes it clear that it's sides that have interest in it. Right. Um, but it, it shouldn't be taken to mean a dichotomy. Like it shouldn't just mean you have to have one side and the other side. Technically, it means all sides. It's just, like I said, a lot of the conversation around the fairness doctrine really relies on that conceit that an issue has two sides, quote unquote. Anyway, it would be in the public interest to ensure that the, all the sides of a topic had equal airtime in which to present themselves, which, you know, not to get too much of a callback going on, but when we started talking about um, the freedom of speech and the foundations of why we value the freedom of speech, this really goes back to that sort of fortress theory that we talked about, where ideas should be allowed to compete openly so the public can decide. That's kind of the natural legal uh, written version of that for our media. So this, this leads me to wonder, like I brought up in the opening, like would fireside breakdowns actually run afoul of the fairness doctrine? Like we try, we try to sort of present the sides of a topic of a, of a, you know, opinion or something that's happening, but you know, <laughs> we obviously have a pretty leftward bent and I don't know. I don't know if our attempts to be fair would be enough. Oh, that's which a good is kind question. Of the problem. That's yeah. a really good question. I mean, I personally think that we would uh, we would make it under the fairness doctrine because it the the general premise didn't say that you had to present without commentary or without bias. You just had to present all of the the perspectives. And I think mm. we do a pretty good job of that. So hmm. but that's just me. True. I'm I'm a little partial I mean, to us. Just, just pat ourselves on the back right there. Yeah. You know, so we do a good job. We do great. All right. Knowing what we know about the First Amendment and the freedom of the press and all of that, I can just hear our astute listeners asking how on earth the federal government could get away with telling broadcasters what it is that they have to broadcast. And lucky for you, I'm going to answer that for you right now. The answer to that question lies in two terms, scarcity and public interest. The, the primary justification for the Fairness Doctrine centered on the scarcity of frequencies on which radio signals could be broadcast. So because the number of broadcast licenses available was inherently limited, the determination was made that every station that holds a license must operate in the public interest, which, the government decided, meant presenting news and information that spoke to important public interest issues. 
And then if those limited number of stations were going to present that news and information to serve that public interest, they should be required to present both sides so that listeners could make informed decisions. So if you lived in an area that only had access to one radio station, and that was your only connection to these broadcast outlets, that station had to be able to provide you with information that was that served the public interest, that informed you and kept you up to date on important things happening in your local community and in the country. Um, but then if you only did have that one radio station, there was no room for them to present a biased perspective because they had to give you the information that you needed to be able to make an informed decision. So that rule was essentially the culmination of the federal government's efforts to decide just how this limited and incredibly popular new communication tool should be controlled in a way that would ensure public benefit and also minimize the potential for extremist propaganda. That was another driving factor, and it becomes a stronger driving factor as we go on. But to get started, let's take a really quick look at the timeline leading up to the establishment of the Fairness Doctrine. Let's. In 1927, the Federal Radio Act created the Federal Radio Commission, uh, which was an independent agency that would have control of broadcasting and other radio activities for one year. That act established the rule that in order to broadcast, radio stations must obtain a broadcasting license. This was partly to account for the scarcity issue, which we have said that. What that means is there is a very narrow band of the radio wave spectrum, of the electromagnetic spectrum, that has been set aside for uh, broadcast radio, for public radio. And so for FM, that's generally between that like 88.1 station and 105, I think, right? That, that band that is representative of the band that has been set aside in the radio frequencies. Anything outside of that band has either been set aside for something else or is not usable for the purposes of radio transmission, at least with the technology they had at the time. Right. So they could only handle, those radio waves can only handle, you know, one channel per spectrum. And if you've ever been driving between two cities, right, that are far enough apart, uh, that both have a radio station on the same frequency, like 101, right, you'll hear one radio station sort of fade out as the other one fades in and the songs get mixed up. So, it's you have to set aside a certain part of the band and then enough buffer on either side of that band so that the radio waves don't interfere with each other and you can't actually hear what's going on. Because of that, there is only a limited number of these broadcast licenses that they could give out. So this was to account for that. These rulings were to account for that scarcity issue. Um, they're also to prevent interference from competing broadcasters so, you know, somebody couldn't set up a radio tower in the that blasts out a stronger signal than their <laughs> opponent and just drown out whatever they're saying. It's like, no, you get our radio instead. Partly to account for that, uh, partly to prevent interference. Um, I'm sorry, partly to prevent just this tidal wave of radio stations broadcasting any manner of propaganda and stuff to the unsuspecting public, uh, especially like you see how much people struggle with credulity on the internet imagine the radio oh right gosh. where you don't have any of this practice built up of questioning the sources uh, think of what happened when the war of the worlds was aired yeah and that's a perfect thought example that was, they thought that was real you know so people used to the radio was gospel you know that you could trust everything you heard on it and that really had some problems <laughs> going going through time. So there was a very strong cultural argument to be made for why this sort of regulation was necessary. It was readily apparent at the time that this meant that the people who had the licenses would control what people would hear. Right. All, if you had the license, you had the power. So in 1930, this Federal Radio Commission b 
became a permanent entity, and in 1932, the Supreme Court upheld the provision of the Radio Act that declared all of these channels to be public property. Um, in 1934, then, the Landmark Communications Act would set the tone for all of the conversations to come about how broadcast channels should be regulated and monitored. The Communications Act created the FCC, which we all know and love, uh, the Federal Communications Commission, and gave it charge of radio, cable, and telegraph systems. I wonder if they've been amended to have control over podcasts, but I kind of doubt it because that would be the internet. I don't know. Yeah, I um, think because it's mostly internet. Except in those cases where you have podcast content that overlaps with radio content, like some of the NPR podcasts. Yeah. We should probably figure that out, Robin. <laughs> we should we should probably figure out who our regulating authority is so we know. Um, no one's the boss of me. I'm the boss of me. Yeah, that's right. It's the internet. Wild, wild west out here. The act, this uh, communications act, also established the basic uh, public interest mandate for stations maintaining FCC broadcast licenses, which required them to cover topics of significant public interest in their communities and over time eventually established these expectations that all sides of an issue would be presented. These rules then laid the foundation for what would eventually become the Fairness Doctrine and some of the more subsidiary rules that would be lumped it in with it in common understanding. So 1927 to 1934, the, the Radio Act in 1927 into the Communications Act in 1934 was the roadmap that established the Fairness Doctrine. Right. And things rolled along perfectly fine, just like that. And so we'll fast forward 15 years to 1949. Everything's going well with the Communications Act and the FCC is doing its job trying to ensure that broadcasters are serving the public interest, but it's time to make these fairness guidelines a little bit more official. So the FCC issued a report called In the Matter of Editorializing by Broadcast Licensees, like we talked about before, in which they laid out the case for the establishment of the official fairness doctrine. And then from there on out, the doctrine was official FCC policy. And that's the way that things operated for almost 40 years, even as more broadcast outlets developed. In 1959, Congress officially amended the Communications Act, giving statutory recognition to the Fairness Doctrine, and each public broadcasting outlet was charged with serving the public interest by providing opportunity for equal presentation of opposing public affairs perspectives. And it's not like the FCC was the only organization that was in favor of these rules. Supreme Court decisions throughout the 1960s and the 1970s upheld these guidelines sometimes even serving to expand the scope of the guidelines. In 1963, the case of Coleman versus the FCC established a guideline that became one of the most controversial aspects of the policy. The Coleman Doctrine, as it came to be called, held that if parties on one side of an issue purchased airtime to discuss their opinion, but the parties on the other side could not afford that same cost, then the station must actually provide that airtime for free under the Fairness Doctrine. A 1967 decision gave individuals the right to reply if they felt that they had been maligned on air. And then with the Red Lion Broadcasting versus the FCC case in 1969, the Supreme Court upheld the constitutionality of the Fairness Doctrine pretty much across the board, noting that it's the right of the viewers and listeners, not the right of the broadcasters, which is paramount. The Supreme Court's decision in Red Lion was basically the high watermark for this point of view. The background on the story is that in 1964, a minister who owned a radio station in Red Lion, Pennsylvania, sold 15 minutes for $7.50 to the Reverend Billy James Hargis for his Christian Crusade program, which aired on about 200 stations. Hargis then took two minutes of his program to criticize Fred Cook, who was the author of Goldwater, extremist on the right. Cook complained to the FCC and demanded equal time to respond. So the broadcaster offered him 15 minutes for $7.50, but Cook declined, demanding free airtime under the doctrine and its personal attack rule. 
the FCC granted him that free time, and the justices unanimously sustained the doctrine on the grounds that the airwaves are scarce. So that's all of it wrapped up in a neat little, neat little package. That's basically how it would happen. Somebody would come with a complaint. Somebody would sue basically for resolution. Bada bing, bada boom. You get free airtime. Yeah. The 1972 Federal Election Campaign Act amended the Communications Act, giving the FCC authority to revoke station licenses or construction permits for willful or repeated failure to allow reasonable access to or to permit purchase of reasonable amounts of time for the use of a broadcasting station by a legally qualified candidate for federal elective office on behalf of his candidacy. Which is a lot of words to say, hey, if you don't allow this guy who's running for office the same amount of time at the same reasonable price as you offer this guy running for office... We're going to smack you. We're going to take your we're gonna, license. We're going to revoke that station license. So you have to basically allow everybody running for office to get the same deal on the same amount of airtime to present their case. That's what that boils down to. It's just legal talk for that. So what happened to this? I mean, it looked like everything was going so well. What caused the downfall of this rule predicated in balance and public service? Well, I... Like literally everything that we talk about here, it's not one specific factor that caused the shift away from the fairness doctrine. There were, however, a few things we know made an impact. First, as access to various forms of broadcasting increased, like television, for example, the perception of scarcity decreased. Remember, remember, one of the primary reasons the government was willing to regulate the content of public broadcast stations was because the scarcity of availability pretty much compelled them to act in public interest. But as the volume of broadcast stations increased, especially those that fell outside the constraints of the fairness doctrine, like cable news channels, it became harder to justify that perspective. What exactly was so scarce. We have so many avenues to get information out there. I'm just imagining them addressing Twitter. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Heads will explode. So Mark Fowler was the chairman of the SEC in 1981. And this is the year that the commission recommended that the fairness doctrine be discarded. Mr. Fowler said, the scarcity of media access argument is a bankrupt one. It is, about, it is about time that media got the same rights to select material as newspapers, book publishers, and others. Some commentators also think that the definition of a controversial issue on which stations were compelled to present, quote, all sides, may have played a part in the shift in opinion toward the rule. For example, in 1967, the FCC determined that cigarette advertising presented one side of a controversial issue, and as such, stations presenting such advertisements must offer free airtime for anti-tobacco positions. This kind of jockeying went on for a short time, but eventually pressure from advertisers effectively squashed it. According to many sources, what really killed the fairness doctrine was a good old shift in public and political opinion. By the 1980s, the tide began to turn in favor of anti-fairness doctrine arguments. The makeup of the seven-member FCC had shifted, and most were no longer in favor of the regulation. In 1981, the commission recommended removing the rule entirely. In 1983, the commission allowed broadcasters to sponsor election campaign debates without having to provide airtime to every candidate. And then the first death blow really came in 1984, when the District of Columbia Circuit Court re-examined the 1959 congressional amendment that gave the doctrine legislative backing. In the FCC versus the League of Women Voters, the court decided in a two-to-one decision the two in favor being Antonin Scalia and Robert Bork, um, very well-known conservative justices. 
they decided that the congressional amendment was not a binding statutory obligation. So this signaled to the FCC that it no longer had to enforce the rule. And SCOTUS noted that if the FCC could demonstrate that the doctrine actually reduced speech, the court would reconsider its constitutionality. So in 1985, the FCC did just that. The commission reported to Congress that the Fairness Doctrine chills First Amendment speech rather than serving the public interest. In 1986, a U.S. Court of Appeals decision held that the Fairness Doctrine was not a statutory requirement of the Communications Act of 1934. And then in 1987, as part of the Meredith Broadcasting Corp versus FCC decision, the U.S. Court of Appeals in Washington, D.C., remanded the Fairness Doctrine to the FCC to determine its constitutionality. Basically, they just handed this big, messy baby right back to the regulating body that created it. And then in August of that year, the FCC concluded that it could no longer enforce the Fairness Doctrine on constitutional grounds and voted to abolish it. So then, by October, it was defunct. And then we discovered, actually, that the Fairness Doctrine wasn't technically off the books officially, like not in regulations, until actually 2011, uh, which is officially when the regulation was stricken from the books, um, which I thought was really interesting. It was still, it was still extant, but it wasn't enforceable. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It was very now strange. it just doesn't exist anymore. But also yeah. it speaks to the um, shocking speed at which the United States federal government does things. Oh, yeah. Just lightning fast. Okay. So if the Fairness Doctrine was eliminated almost 35 years ago, maybe not technically officially, why the heck do we care about it in 2021? Well, I'm <laughs> all things old are new again, Robin. We're getting... <laughs> You know, shaggy haircuts and bell bottoms back. Why not a fairness doctrine debate? Yeah. Um, it's as as with all things, it's a talking point again. And and that's not unusual. The idea of the fairness doctrine has been revived several times since nineteen eighty seven. Um, obviously it was actually a discussion under the Obama administration. It was the discussion under the Bush administration, it was the discussion under the Trump administration. It will be a discussion under the Biden administration. <laughs> it's just, it's going to happen. It's, it's like the moon. It keeps coming back. Keeps coming back. Um, <laughs> but in today's political and media climate, and when every single topic seems to be polarized and divided on party lines, we're seeing accusations and assertions about the fairness doctrine resurface. And since we've talked about media bias a lot and how essential it is to understand just which side is being presented when you consume news and because we have mentioned it in a few episodes we wanted to give everyone this this foundational understanding on what the fairness doctrine is and what kind of impact it has had on how we receive news it's also likely although i won't say greater than 50 percent, i would say it's like 30 to 40 percent likelihood that you'll see some sort of legislative discussion about another version of the Fairness Doctrine come up in some form. I, it it makes the rounds in Congress pretty regularly, some some form of it. Yeah, I think the last so, one was, what, 2019, that they tried to yeah. spin something up? Yeah, yeah. It, it, I, it never really goes anywhere, obviously. Um, I think there will be... This is this is prognostication, so take it with a grain of salt. But I, I think we'll see uh, a rather renewed push with it, given the Biden administration and the increased sort of maybe soft power that progressives in Congress have. Mm-hmm. It's it's a very, I think the way I read it, it's kind of a, it kind of slots in with the progressive ideology pretty nicely. Um, the idea maybe not the practice but the idea does right so we'll see we'll see i think that's a fair prognostication Um, yeah i try to keep them at least somewhat rooted in some form of reality somewhere just a little so 
obviously, since this was eliminated 35 years ago now, we have so much data to determine whether or not it actually did what it was supposed to do. Just study after study after study, right? Did this make radio waves a place with fair and balanced coverage for divisive topics? We can just Google that right up, right? I mean, you're listening to this podcast. You know we rarely cover things that are super simple. <laughs> you know this answer. It depends. It depends. Kind of, maybe, who knows? So scholars and lawmakers and nerdy armchair politician podcast hosts alike continued to discuss the effectiveness and the constitutionality and effects of potential reinstatement, especially in the aftermath of, okay, well, really, really, really in the, in the <laughs> aftermath of the last administration and the attempted insurrection on January 6th, the conversation about whether or not it should be reinstated has has resumed. And there are thought processes out there like, could could a fairness doctrine have helped prevent the January 6th insurrection attempt um, if Fox and OANN and Newsmax at all weren't allowed to push dangerous election conspiracies without fairly covering the counterpoints to these claims? And shut up. I can hear it. I can hear you all saying that I'm being biased right here. I'm not, okay? <laughs> I'm not being unduly biased in naming these organizations because the rioters themselves claim that right-wing media led them, at least in part, to their actions. So that is their words, not mine. It's also just common sense. Would we have as much division in our country as we do if the media were required to address issues more fairly? with more nuance. According to Gallup, America's trust in mass media has been in an overall downward trend since 1998, dropping from about 54% in that year to 40% in 2020, with an all-time low in 2016 of 32%. Only 4 in 10 adults say, I should, hold on, only 4 in 10 adults in the United States say they have either a great deal or a fair amount of trust and confidence in the media to report news, quote, fully, accurately, and fairly. While fully 6 in 10 United States adults have not very much or no trust at all. And, and since 2005, less than half of America, less than 50% of Americans have trusted the news. That feels heavy. That feels really heavy. I mean, it is. It is. It's, it's indicative of a very deep-rooted problem in our society. I mean, in the interest of upholding our, our fairness doctrine standards, we, like, we do have to acknowledge that the fairness doctrine as it was created would probably have done absolutely nothing to mitigate the damage done by these private cable news channels like right. Fox News and OANN and Newsmax because they didn't mm. fall under that public interest mandate. They they weren't right. public broadcasting stations. They weren't your local news. But it begs the question, would a new type of fairness doctrine help with these issues? Right. We're personally of the opinion that a functional society has to have a media that they can trust so that they can have discussions that are based on a mutually accepted set of information about any given topic. Hmm, I wonder, common ground, that sounds familiar. Hmm. Mm. But in order to explore that question, we have to look at the historic implementation of the Fairness Doctrine and see how it did and didn't work to accomplish that purpose. So determining if the fairness doctrine worked, isn't really straightforward. Despite having the benefit of nearly 40 years of hindsight, there's just not a lot of clarity. Did this regulation serve to ensure that balanced perspectives on controversial issues were presented on all broadcasting platforms subject to licensure by the FCC? The short answer to that question is mostly kind of yes, I mean, for more than 30 years, the doctrine more or less made sure that a scarce medium, these, this radio broadcast, was used in the public interest. 
but it was notoriously hard to enforce. The definition of a controversial issue was often left up to broadcasters until that discretion was challenged, as was the determination of whether or not a balanced perspective had actually been presented. If no one challenged a station's decision in a meaningful enough way as to draw the attention of the FCC, then a transgression may very well go unnoticed. And even if it did make it to the FCC, it may not have received any action at all. One of the sources that we found indicated that fewer than 1% of Fairness Doctrine complaints actually ever succeeded in getting some sort of FCC action. And there's a pretty substantial amount of evidence to suggest that it actually became a tool of political activism by folks on both sides of the political fence that was used in coordinated campaigns to gain airtime and publicity for whatever cause it was that they wanted to advance. Beginning in 1963, the Kennedy and Johnson administrations, with financial backing from the Democratic National Committee, used the Fairness Doctrine to subdue right-wing radio commentators who were critical of the administration's goals. Yeah, in, in 1963, uh, JFK told then-FCC Chief Bill Henry, I'm not going to do a, a Kennedy impersonation. Thank because, God. Honestly, I'm just, I just I can't do it. Um, he said, it is important that stations be kept fair. Henry. <laughs> you did it. I knew you were going to. I lied. I lied. <laughs> Henry took this directive and he issued a clarification of the Fairness Doctrine that ensured there would be a new push for enforcement. This clarification, however, when he worded it, only focused on examples of conservative speech that needed balancing by liberal voices. And it very conveniently didn't mention anything going the other way. This new push for enforcement relied on members of the public filing Fairness Doctrine complaints with the FCC. And then when it came time to renew a radio station's license, the FCC would look at the quantity and quality of the complaints filed and use that to weigh whether or not that station would get a renewal. So obviously this sort of, as a radio station owner, you would want to keep these complaints to a minimum mm -hmm. because, you know, you, <laughs> in 1963, there really wasn't, there wasn't another medium. It's not like there was an internet for a non-licensed radio station to publish their content on. They couldn't sign up for Sirius, right? So losing that license effectively killed the station. Short of officially revoking a license even, just the court costs associated with defending the station from the, the assertions that it was outside of the guidance of the Fairness Doctrine, that cost could be burdensome enough to sink the station by itself. And this became a pretty effective cudgel, too. When Kennedy was negotiating the nuclear test ban treaty with the Soviet Union, the treaty was going to be a primary plank of his re-election bid. But it was being castigated mercilessly by right-wing radio. Now, a treaty needs a two-thirds Senate vote in order to be ratified. And when a massive portion of the country is being inundated with anti-treaty talking points non-stop, this is going to put a lot of pressure on senators to vote against the treaty, since their constituents are only going to be hearing how bad such a treaty is going to be. Therefore, Kennedy and Henry worked closely with the Citizens Committee for a nuclear test ban, which we couldn't find any information on. We think that this is another name for the National Committee for a Sane Nuclear Policy, but we can't exactly be sure. The committee went around and threatened to file complaints with the FCC if radio stations publishing anti-treaty content didn't provide equal opportunity for pro-treaty content. Using this method, Kennedy and his supporters got hundreds of hours of free airtime to make their case. The treaty was ratified. Now, there's, there's a lot more to the story behind why that treaty got ratified. <laughs> it's actually really interesting. Um, I mean, if you're a history nerd and you enjoy political uh international relations and I, I just think it's very interesting um attributing ratification solely to pressuring radio stations for airtime is probably a bit of a stretch but that was a factor probably just not the sole factor there was a lot of 
conversation between Kennedy and and uh, the head of the National Committee for a sane nuclear policy. That guy was an interlocutor between Russia. It, whatever. I'm getting nerdy now. Um, getting Nixon. Nerdy. Uh, okay, funny, funny. Nixon would go on after Kennedy and Johnson. Uh, to abuse the fairness doctrine for his own purposes. I'm sure you know what it's related to. Obviously, Watergate. Um, he tried to pressure the Washington Post into just giving up its investigation into the Watergate scandal uh, by using the fairness doctrine, right? I We don't have time to get into how crazy that argument was. But obviously... Like it takes a little less to really explain why that would have been a tragedy for America and American politics. It's Watergate. I'm I'm pretty sure everybody who thinks that there was nothing wrong with that whole fiasco is is dead. They're they're dead or dying. I mean, the guy who actually committed the robbery, he died this week. Oh no. Oh man. Um, yeah, one. Of, well, yeah, there's more than one, but yeah, yeah. The he actually uh, kicked kicked the bucket this week. Interesting life on that guy. He had a post-robbery, post-conviction. He had a, a film career. So, yeah. Uh, yeah, just, I'm going to give that one a and Google. And he never copped to it, never admitted it. He was convicted, but never, ever, ever admitted it. I mean, hey. Crazy. All right. So, I mean, there's the question. Was the Fairness Doctrine a good policy idea that worked for everyone? And that's a solid maybe. The reality is that it's really difficult to get a truly accurate picture of information about it because it seems like the only discussion that can be found about it now is, like everything else, highly politically charged. At the time that it was in force, it enjoyed relatively bipartisan support. There were supporters on both sides. And, and when in 1987, when the FCC was trying to repeal it, there was a bipartisan effort to keep it in place. But now there are only two pretty distinct camps. Liberals think that it needs to be reinstated in some form in order to promote a functional democracy. And conservatives think that it was a heavy handed regulation that unfairly inhibited free speech and needs to, well, stay dead. We, um, it's hard to kind of come down on who's right there, honestly, because I personally am, I'm, traumatized i think is the proper word for it <laughs> i'm pretty gun shy thinking about enacting something that gives a federal regulating authority this much power again um at least without some sort of guide rail on it you know i'm always a little and now i'm a lot when it comes to trying to legislate morality or morality adjacent things you know, I think back to what the prohibition did to America and, and what that did. And we were trying to tell people, you know, you can't drink. I, I think about the abortion debate and how that leads to all sorts of complications and, and unnecessary deaths, which is probably going to get people mad at me, whatever. Um, you know, it's just these attempts to legislate morality are never really go the way you want it to. And it could be said that it is a moral argument that you should provide equal airtime to both sides. It's a value judgment, ultimately, to say this is controversial. You need to let both sides talk about it because it's good. So, you know, looking at multiple previous administrations, but especially the previous administrations, fairly flagrant abuse of governmental powers to do what they wanted you know seeing that really causes me to pump the brakes on enacting a policy like the fairness doctrine again honestly i'm just i mean but even setting that aside we kind of touched on it earlier consider the incredibly complex media ecosystem now right we have not just public airwaves not just am and fm but we've got sirius we've got spotify we've got the internet we've got television we still have newspapers, mostly, uh, books. Like, It's not like there's a duality of entertainment choices anymore. It's not just radio or print. We have 
all sort of like a, a veritable buffet of news source options. So would it even be possible? It's one of those ideas. It sounds really good on paper. Like it's an ideal that we should strive for, I think. But it's so sticky when it's applied to real life. There's so many thorny problems. And that's one of the primary reasons we think this is a discussion worth having. So next week, I think we'll explore some of those controversies, those issues, and where they come from, and how this has evolved into a partisan talking point. And we're going to examine whether or not we should bring some form of the fairness doctrine back. And maybe I'll get a little clarity on how I feel about doing something like this. Because, you know, I'm just, I just don't know. Well, I have my thoughts, but I'm going to save them for next week when we discuss whether or not we should bring it back. So for now, good news. Well, a shameless plug and then good news. Shameless plug. This is the point in the episode where we always tell you that we would be so grateful, overwhelmingly appreciative if you would do us a favor of leaving us a review on your favorite podcasting platform, should it allow you to do so. If it doesn't allow you to do so, you could always find us on Facebook at Fireside Breakdowns and leave us a review there. You can also find us on Instagram and Twitter by searching Fireside Breakdowns. And we posted on social media last week and in our Instagram stories. So, I mean, basically, we're killing it. We're crushing the game now. You can find out for yourself what we listen to when we're researching articles like this. Spoiler, it was Total War Warhammer Empire Mm -hmm. soundtrack. That's what I was listening to, at least. But we would love to hear from you. We would love to interact with you. If social media is not your game, you could always shoot us an email. We are firesidebreakdowns at gmail.com. We would love to hear from you. Your thoughts on the Fairness Doctrine. Should we bring it back? Should we not bring it back? Was it awesome? Was it terrible? Do you know exactly what was going on with those nuclear test ban committees that we were trying to figure out? If that's the case, (laughs) shoot us an email. Somebody shine some light. Somebody tell us something. Somebody. That's no. We try really hard to be professional amateurs here, but that one just eluded us. Sometimes there's just something you can't chase down. So just can't crack that nut. I feel like that was as shameless yeah. as it gets. Give me some yeah. good news. I will say every time we get a review, I just curl up around my phone and weep with joy. It just warms my heart. Let's get some yeah good news. <laughs> this is this one is a little personal to me. I know. Listeners of the pod. You'll know. You'll know. The users of Wall Street Bets, a subreddit on Reddit, the website, uh, used some of their GameStop bounty to support the Diane Fossey Gorilla Fund, plus also some funds for manatees and warthogs and leopards. Uh, the Fossey Fund goes to a lot of things. Um, the reason being, like... There's a joke within that subreddit that the members of it are ape gang or apes. I literally could not tell you where that came from. I don't know why. And of course, the 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 line from um, War of the Worlds, the remakes get tossed around a lot. Apes together strong, right? So yeah, it, it's it's a it's a thing. It's a thing. Anyway, so it's kind of derived from this sort of like they're a bunch of apes pressing buttons on a keyboard to buy their stocks yeah somewhere in that neighborhood but you know they it kind of harnessed that viral power of the internet and one member was like hey i just donated to this cool gorilla fund i mean come on apes and then another you know a bunch of other members did and um as of march 15th they had raised more than a quarter million dollars and donated it to animal conservation uh, for the Reddit users, which I thought was was awesome. I can also say um, a lot of the other benefactors from this have been children's hospitals, have received massive donations of gaming systems that were bought at GameStop um, so that kids could play Switch and enjoy video games while they're facing these life-threatening illnesses. 
and uh, while they're hospitalized. And so it's been it's just been really cool to see how something that was ultimately born out of, let's face it, greed, you know, the desire to make right. a quick butt buck. And um, also to stick it to has, the man. Uh, well, yeah. I mean, yeah. I think that that particular part of it was kind of co-opted. That was like a little side load into the main, like, we just want to, we want to make some money. But uh, it, it, it was... It's really cool to see this happen. I think I think these spontaneous acts say a lot about humanity in general, um, a lot about the potential of humanity. Um, and it takes something sometimes a little bit bigger than me or you or politics to get people thinking about other people in a good way instead of trying to alienate the other to think of them as my brother and a fellow human and somebody who needs help and being taken care of or to think about apes as something that it's needs help. Exactly. <laughs> you know, now, I mean, I'm just super happy to see if, it. um, if my AMC, AMC stock would do a uh, GameStop, I vow to donate funds to an out of work actor. If we could just, that'd be great. I mean, the universe could just hear but that. I mean, yeah, <laughs> technically, I am an actor who is out of acting work, so I will take those funds. Um, well, but right now uh, you can have my negative AMC I, <laughs> returns. Offload that bag. I got you. But no. But on that note, like the 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 meme stock, like hype around AMC, pretty much saved AMC from bank. Yeah. Like if you're somebody who enjoys going to the theater and watching movies, what happened with AMC stock was amazing. I mean, for me, I love watching movies in a theater. Yeah. I don't know why. I just love it. So I'm happy to see that they did benefit from that. Yeah. Yeah, it's cool. There's a lot of it's, it's cool. A lot of weird fringe good news around that whole story. I love it. So yeah. Anyway, Robin, what you got? Any any final thoughts? Oh, man. I just, I have so many thoughts. I have so many thoughts about, about a lot of things, but I think that they're probably best saved for this next episode. All right. Plus, it's like midnight. This is a special midnight recording of the show, so we're pretty much toasted. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah. Yep. All right. Everybody, thank you so much for listening. Uh, we will see you one week from now, and until that time, take care of each other. <laughs> <laughs>